Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is a U of U Institute teacher, Jared Halverson. Welcome to the podcast, Jared. Great to be with you, Richard. I became aware of Brother Halverson with an LDS one-on-one video that was released. We'll link it um, in the podcast bio. But in that um, one-on-one, Brother Halverson talked about how to help students in a faith crisis. And I loved what he taught in that video and his unique ministry. And so we will talk in this podcast about um, honoring questions that um, faithful Latter-day Saints have about their faith and Brother Halverson talking about those questions. And and um, it'll be a podcast helpful for to you if you have honest questions about our faith or if you're trying to help other people with their questions, parents or local leaders, it will help you. And just really grateful to have Brother Halverson on the podcast. Um, by way of introduction, he's in his early mid, early to mid forties. We'll kind of put it around there. He has, <laughs> thanks for including early. <laughs> <laughs> he might be forty five. He has um, five kids, age eleven to eighteen. He has spent twenty years since his since getting a master's at BYU in the church education system, and that's taken him. Um, currently in the University of Utah, he's been at Westminster, and he spent about eight years in Nashville at Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. Um, he was there getting a PhD, and we'll talk about that. Um, and this, just really grateful to have Jared on the podcast. Will you, um, for any introductory comments you just want to share for our listeners, then I'd love you to give us maybe five minutes just on your education background, because it's so unique. And it will help our listeners to understand where you're coming from. Well, more than anything, Richard, I'm just grateful to have the opportunity to speak to your listeners. Uh, you do such a good job of reaching out to them and lifting and, and loving and helping them learn. And, and that's my goal in life as well as a, as a teacher. I've always been drawn to that. I come from a long line of, of teachers in public education. And right now I have a brother that's a doctor, one that's a lawyer, one that's a banker. And then there's me as the teacher. I always, I always laugh thinking you guys all went off to make money and they left the family business, but here I am. Uh, But just grateful for students uh, and to recognize their value and the questions that they have and the struggles that they go through and just wanting to help any way that I can. And that was really what motivated me to want to continue education. That's what drove me to Divinity School. Uh, When I was applying and they asked me why I wanted to come, one of the reasons I told them was from a hymn that's in our hymn book and also in a lot of other Christian hymn books of more holiness give me, there's the line of more used would I be. And I just felt that the best education, in fact, St. Augustine talked about plundering the riches of Egypt, that great story of uh, the Israelites when they take the gold and the jewelry and the earrings and so on from the Egyptians as they're leaving on the Exodus. Because if you're going to build a tabernacle, you're going to need a lot of gold and where are a bunch of escaped slaves going to get that? And so they, they took all of these riches meant to be tabernacle implements and, and brought them with them. And so St. Augustine talks about plundering the riches of Egypt as an academic exercise to get as much of a secular, the best secular education that you possibly could to plunder those riches. And then you have this decision to make. Uh, because the same gold that was meant to be tabernacle implements ended up golden calf along the way. And I'm fascinated by the academic approach to religion and watching people who go in hopes of plundering Egypt's riches. And then you have this decision to make, will I make a golden calf out of it? 
uh, or will I make tabernacle temple implements? And just going, I, I wanted the best education that I could. Vanderbilt's program was incredible. Uh, the faculty I got to work with were top notch. And to be able to study religion from a, a secular perspective and from an academic perspective, I just felt I could be more useful. And sure enough, it's turned out to be that way where I'm amazed at how many young people will come with the questions of the soul, but also the questions of the mind. We live in the information age, thanks to the internet, which is also the misinformation age. And so to try to help them navigate all of that and, and balance the, the mind with the heart as they try to, to maintain faith in a world that makes that difficult sometimes. So you're living in Nashville. Um, you're in charge of the church education system or the institute there at Vanderbilt. Yeah, it covered all of Middle Tennessee. Middle and, Tennessee, and you're in the middle of, and you're in a PhD program. Yep. At a divinity school, Vanderbilt. What a, and you've got five kids. Yeah. What a crazy life. It really was. Yeah, I remember once uh, my wife had called and left a message, and it took me longer than normal to get back to her, and she was wondering what took me so long. I said, "Honey, I feel like I'm playing Tetris with my time." And I have to twist and find things. Where will they fit? And I knew I could call you on the drive home. It was, it was intense to be able to balance full-time church education work uh, and, and at the same time full-time PhD work. The, both the church and the university were kind to let me make the attempt to, to maintain both. But it was, I wouldn't wish it on anyone how, how busy it was, but at the same time, the teaching the gospel kept my feet on the ground while studying academic religion brought my head to the clouds and being able to have both simultaneously ended up being a real blessing. I could take what I was learning at divinity school and apply that to the classroom. And my students really benefited from seeing we're not the only people that have asked this question or, you know, this is what other churches have said in response to this kind of issue uh, but at the same time, teaching the gospel really grounded the work that I was doing at, at school to allow allow me to maintain my faith through a rigorous academic program. Share with our listeners the focus of your PhD. And I think you're just finishing your dissertation. Hope to, if I'm using the right vocabulary this year. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's been a long, a long uh, road to hoe. It's. I, I originally got a master's a degree at BYU in religious education, and studied the process of conversion uh, using the Italian mission as a, a case, case study. Then I was at Vanderbilt, started a second master's program there in order to expand my understanding of religious history uh, and especially contextualize Latter-day Saint history. Where does it fit among all these other denominations and, and, and what's going on in a bigger religious perspective than just what's taking place in the restored gospel? And as part of that, I did a, a six-week program at BYU uh, that Richard Bushman and Terrell Givens ran for kind of up-and-coming scholars of, of Latter-day Saint history. And in that, we were studying the gold plates as a cultural phenomenon. And you can't get any better than, than Bushman and Givens as far as mentors and historians and academics. And in my own research during that six weeks, I focused on the coming forth of the Book of Mormon from a non-Latter-day Saint perspective, if you were just opening the newspaper uh, somewhere in Virginia, for example, and happened to read an article about the coming forth of this gold Bible, what would your impression have been if that was all you knew? And I was amazed at how much of it was skeptical, 
was cynical even, uh, how much revolved around mockery and ridicule. And that, as I, the more I researched, I thought, wow, there's a whole approach to attacking faith. Uh, I came back to Vanderbilt after that program, and that ended up being the, the that second master's thesis was the Book of Mormon and the popular imagination and what was done to try to delegitimize it before the missionaries even had a chance to, to, to get a word in edgewise. And then as master's turned into PhD, uh, most of my coursework had to do with anti-religious rhetoric, religious conflict. Uh, it was you know, to study anti-Mormonism, anti-Methodism, anti-Shakerism, anti-Catholicism, anti-Semitism, uh, you name it, and start seeing some common denominators of how faith is attacked uh, by rival religions or the irreligious or non-religious. That kind of became the the bigger picture. Once I felt like I was wrapping my mind around anti-Mormonism and then comparing that, you know, so much of 19th century American anti-Mormonism is a reheated version of 18th century British anti-Methodism and, and kind of what's the, who's the whipping boy of the current century, so to speak. And, and the more I studied how faith is attacked, it became more of a secular versus religious worldview. And how did Enlightenment philosophy take on faith and try to delegitimize it during the 18th century particularly? And so the dissertation that I'm working on currently is how the Bible was delegitimized during 19th century America. So moving from anti-Book of Mormon now to the, 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 big, the big target uh, of, of skeptics, how do you take down the Bible? I mean, that's the sacred cow of American Protestantism, particularly. Uh, our nation was founded as, as a biblical commonwealth in New England. And, and to see throughout the long 19th century, how have people attacked the Bible in hopes of, of reducing its influence spiritually, politically, uh, you, you name it. And so it's been, it's been fascinating. And, and, I hope, hope that when it's done, uh, to be able to return to some more specifically Latter-day Saint topics. Uh, but it, it's been neat to see how useful that academic background has proven. When I, I, little did I know when I told that, that uh, uh, advisor more used would I be, just how much that would, be, would prove possible based on the background that I've been able to, to have as so many students will come and think and ask, wait, so you, you've studied this stuff or you are aware of this anti-Mormon book or article or argument and you're okay to talk about it and somehow you still have your faith and you're, I mean, I had one conversation with a young man that was fascinating. He it was just the two of us one-on-one -on -one in my office. I do that often. I probably spend as much time one-on-one -on -one with students as I do in the classroom with large groups. And this particular young man kept saying, this whole time I look around the ward that I used to belong to and I see my LDS friends and think, if they knew what I knew, they would leave the church too. The only reason that they're sticking around is because they're not aware of all of these questions or concerns. And, but here you are. And he just said, I don't get you. I, you know, all the stuff that I know you've, you know, stuff I don't know. You've read things. And here you are with your faith and your testimony intact. And it's been nice to be on the one hand to validate the concerns and questions people have, uh, to be aware of them and recognize that, that doubters do have a leg to stand on. 
that there is, uh, there are two sides to every issue and to be aware. I mean, in some ways this is a court case taking place and there are lawyers for the prosecution and lawyers for the defense and evidence for the prosecution and evidence for the defense and a need for, uh, cross-examination and examination of, of, of evidence and witnesses and so on. And so to be able to validate where they're coming from and say, that is an excellent question. Uh, I can completely understand why that would, would be, that would destabilize your faith or that you'd wonder or you'd struggle with that. Uh, I've wondered the same thing, or I've, I've read that I've been, I'm aware of that. Here's some additional information or another way that you might frame the question or look at the sources, or here's some additional information that might give you some, some added perspective on that. And so the combination of validating and empathizing, knowing where they're coming from, having seen those things myself, but at the same time, be able to say, and here's another way to approach the, the topic. And so for, for that young man, it was, it was just an interesting experience of you can know these things and, and still maintain faith. And just because someone is a faithful member of the church, it's not out of ignorance. They may know all of those same things too, but have been able to resolve those issues and are still navigating the, that, that kind of faithful life. I love that, Jared. And one of the things I've picked up is sometimes the only people that will talk about the complicated stuff are people that have left the church. Right. And there's then a feeling, well, that's my community now because they're the only group that will talk about the things I'm learning and how I feel. And I don't sense safety um, talking about this subject with family, friends, local leaders. And in your first LDS video um, that I listened to a couple times, Matt Horner, if you're listening, you're the one that sent me this stuff and made this whole podcast possible. Common friend of both of ours is there was this kid and I, I got tears in my eyes, Jared, as you shared this story, there's this kid in the corner of your classroom, yeah. bravely raising his hand, asking, just talk, share. Cause I think all of us are that kid in the corner of the classroom that has a question. And there's so much fear in asking a question sometimes culturally in our classroom, talk to us about that experience. It was a student, I, I, it was a large class. It was a class I had been teaching. I had actually been asked to move back to Utah from Tennessee once all the coursework finished uh, at Vanderbilt to help write the curriculum for a new institute course called Foundations of the Restoration. It's one that was developed, oh, I guess it's been six years ago now, to try to be able to face the difficult issues of church history head on. Uh, there have been some concerns. A lot of people who have left the church over church history issues complain that these things weren't, that they were kept from them. Uh, I wouldn't say they were kept from them, but they were kept in more academic venues. Uh, and so they could, someone could say, I was active my whole life and I graduated from seminary. I went on a mission and, and I never heard about these things. And that not only left them with questions about the specific issue, but left them questions about the church itself. Well, why isn't the church talking about these things? And so I'm very grateful at how proactive the church has become with whether it's the gospel topics essays, whether it's the Joseph Smith papers project, there's so many incredible scholars with, throughout the church, both that work for the church or work for church education or amazing scholars that don't have any institutional tie uh, to, to the church I, I mean, that was my, Kathleen Flake was my PhD advisor at, at Vanderbilt, and she now runs the Mormon Studies program at the University of Virginia, and a top-notch 
scholar of, of LDS history and American religious history. And so to be whipped in the shape by her was incredible. And, and to see the resources that are out there and the tools that the, that the church institutionally is bringing to the table to try to help meet the needs of the rising generation. When I came back, they asked me to help write the curriculum for that. And I was thrilled to be able to head on. You want to talk about the historicity of the book of Abraham? Let's do it. You want to talk about plural marriage, whether in the Smith period or the young period or post manifesto, let's, let's do it. No holds barred race in the priesthood coming forth of the book of Mormon, multiple accounts of the first vision, all of those issues kind of, you almost, it wasn't designed specifically to defuse anti-Mormonism. Uh, there's, there are bigger goals for that course than just that. But that ends up happening naturally throughout the course of it. Anyway, I was teaching the class and it started with maybe 30 students. And once they realized, wait, we're going to talk about this stuff. This is at the U now. Yeah, this is at the University of Utah. And uh, there was just this, this interest that was amazing to me. And the, the 30 in class, the next week they brought friends and we were at 60. And the next week they brought friends and we were at 100. And before, by the end of the semester, we had two or 300 students meeting in the chapel to talk about these issues. And this one young man, wonderful young man, happened to just, he wanted to give the church one more chance. He said he had asked some of his early questions at church and had been ostracized. And just felt like there's no place for me in the church if I have questions. And, but he decided to give Institute one shot and he would probably call it by uh, luck of the draw. I would say tender mercy. He happened to come into the chapel probably because it was easy to hide in the back and not get called out. And we were talking about prophets and he had one of the questions that had really been weighing on him for years was but prophets don't claim to be infallible. So how do you follow fallibility? And great question. It is. What it really a thoughtful is. Thoughtful young man. Exactly. And he'd had some experiences himself. He was a convert to the church. Uh, had had some struggles uh, with his, where, where he had, trying to find his own place within the church with some of the questions that he had. And and he happened to come that day, and it was right at the, as class was ending, and he raised his hand. And asked a question. Now, the next day he sent me an email and he said to me, I was scared to death. He gave me his background, told me how, what, a, what a leap of faith it was to come into the class at all. But this, because of the topic of the course and at least some level of openness, he felt maybe I could venture my question here. He raised his hand. He said it was shaking when he did. He was just scared to death that a bunch of heads would turn to look to see who the apostate was that snuck into the back. Who the apostate was. Exactly. And, and sure enough, when he asked his question, which was about fallibility and prophets, a bunch of heads turned. And he said, hey, yep, there it's going to be the same as before. And I said, I thanked him for the question that he asked and said to him, if you weren't going to ask it, I was going to. And clicked to the next slide in the PowerPoint. And there was his question. In fact, it was interesting because at the beginning of class, I had put up a picture of the people at general conference that said that were opposed. That was a, a, a few conferences in a row, right? When, you know, any opposed to the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve and people would vocally or visibly oppose things. And I put that picture up and he said, when I saw that picture, I thought, oh, great, another unsafe environment because that's me. I, I feel opposed to some of the things that are happening and... And yet as class went on and he realized, oh, Brother Halverson wasn't putting up that picture to mock those who were opposing. 
he wanted to help people see these are real questions people have. These are people that are that love the gospel enough to to want to have their questions answered. That to want to, they want to be able to make sense of things. And anyway, it, it led to some great one-on-one conversations between this young man and I. Uh, and, and that was multiplied by dozens and dozens and scores of students over the past years as they've felt comfortable. I, I, I told the class at one point, if space becomes an issue and we can't fit in this room anymore, I'll kick out the, latter, the, the active Latter-day Saints to make room for the ones that are really struggling. Because, well, I'll put it this way, my time in divinity school gave me great respect and admiration for professional clergy. These were friends of mine that were studying for the ministry and whatever denomination they represented. And I see great value in, I, I'd go to their churches as often as I could. I loved that, uh, to go worship with, with friends of other faiths. And at the, at the same time, and, and, it's, and it's, I mean, it's flawless. I mean, to see the well-prepared sermons from people with PhDs and homiletics, you know, it's, it's amazing to watch that ministry. We have a non-professional clergy. And I'll, I still would stand by the fact that it's the, I think it's the best kept secret in the church. I, I think having a non-professional, I mean, you would know this as a, as a former YSA bishop. It's amazing what God makes of us as he throws us into the ministry. But that being said, when a student, when a member of the church has a question, they really struggle. Who do I ask? You know, is, do I bring this up in gospel doctrine? And every gospel doctrine teacher in the church is, is scared to death. Like, oh, please don't. I don't know the answer to that. I was lucky to read the material before class. Uh, poor bishops, you know, you know how, how heavy a load they have. And they have become experts in repentance, in forgiveness. But there's just not the time to be able to dedicate to become experts in church history and so on. I actually had one bishop that I was working with and he said, wait a minute, you mean to tell me if I have a member with a doctrinal question or a historical question, I can send them to you. And I laughed and I said, Bishop, if they ever come to me with a moral question, you better believe I'm sending them to you. So if, if I can scratch your back, you can scratch mine, you know, and, and cause that is something I've spent, you know, the last 20 years studying and particularly with, uh, with graduate work, uh, really digging into those kinds of things. And so it, that's the, I think the challenge of most ch- church members even when we do our best to reassure people that questions are welcome, they still sometimes wonder, but who do I ask them to? And as I've tried to work with students, not only the ones that are questioning, I've ama- I'm amazed at how many will come and say, I have friends who are questioning and I want to be able to help them. How can I do that? And so I actually started a, a new class this last semester on how do we do that? How do we navigate head and heart and scholarship and discipleship and, and maintain dual citizenship in Athens and Jerusalem? And it's been neat to see just a generation of young people wanting to become better equipped to respond kindly and competently to the questions that their family members, their old mission companions, their friends and, and roommates might have about the church. I love the foundations of the restoration. My wife, Sheila, got onto that class for our younger BYU students, and she's often ahead of me when it comes to great courses being developed, and that's blessed our family. And it's helped our children, the younger children, that that class is available, just develop a a more sustainable testimony. 
Exactly. I, I remember sort of inoculated from the harder questions because they hear it from institute um, professors, instructors that um, are talking about this stuff within the walls of our church or classroom. Exactly. Versus other groups that that are that just may not be as helpful. Right. When I was in Tennessee, I, one of the bishops there had asked me to come and do a youth fireside to talk about how do you answer difficult questions in church history. And we had a great evening together, taught some principles, more bigger picture things. Yeah, you typically don't have time to answer every specific question, but here's an approach when you have questions. Here's some things to do. And what struck me at the end of the fireside was realizing in most things when a teenager or a young adult is growing up and, and bumps up against something that they need some help with, they'll typically turn to their parents. And their parents typically will have personal experience in that same regard. It'll be slightly different, but when a young person says, you know, how did you deal with chastity issues uh, or, you know, non-member friends or how did you prepare for a mission? I mean, you name the subject. Parents typically have personal experience to draw upon, but so much because of the internet, it changed everything across the board for every generation. And so when a, when a young person says, mom and dad, how did you deal with this question of church history? Most of the time, the parents themselves never dealt with that question of church history because it wasn't thrust upon them in this information slash misinformation age. And so unfortunately, we have, because of the advent of the internet, you have this, every generation confronts it in real time, simultaneously. And what really struck me in this conversation with this youth group was this might be a, a, an area where you can't go to your parents. They might have the same question you do and don't know the answer or don't know how to find it. Uh, and so you may be figuring these things out together. And so when I, I felt that very strongly in that fire said, but at the same time, I also felt, but your children will not have this problem. There, there, we have to get one generation over the hump, so to speak. We have to be able to help one group navigate it more on their own without, uh, because like you said, from now on, there can be inoculation. From now on, there can be, oh yeah, well, I, I found those same kinds of issues when I was a kid and this is what I did. Uh, there's some, Elder Hafen and Sister Hafen just published a great book on Faith is Not Blind and they talk about their institute experiences from decades ago and having classes where they tackled these issues head on. And so I'm grateful that we're at a point where I guess we're resurrecting some of those days of church education and, and welcome back. And, I, and I'm thrilled that we can, we can do these kinds of things because yeah, I think it will become much simpler for future generations when they can talk to parents and parents are better equipped. I mean, to be honest, I think there is a critical mass right now in the church, particularly of the rising generation. And that's not just true of Latter-day Saints. That's across the board. The rise of the nuns, as they're called, and no affi religious affiliation, that's happening across the den denominational divides. And to see how we're helping that group, if we can get them to, to make it, so to speak, the future, I think, is beautifully bright. I agree. Um, talk, I want to have, there's two kind of questions, longer answer questions, potentially. The first is, and you touched on this, what can we do to create a feeling that we're a safe person to talk to? And then I'd like to get into some of these hard questions. Right. Um, I, I love what you did. I hope our listeners got that. 
it's it's such an interesting thing that you did. You actually had pictures of people at conference that voted against some of the proposals set forth to the general membership. And I don't want to use, I'm not sure I'm using the right words here, but you humanize those people mm-hmm. um, instead of demonize them or villainize them. And that may, there may be a range within those people that does, that are, so they may not be a monolithic group. There may be a range there. Um, but as a way to create a feeling for this guy in the corner, because you didn't go after that group, that maybe this guy's safe for me. I may not be the guy that's actually going to stand up in conference and shout no, but I may be a guy that has some of the same questions. Yeah. And I don't want to answer your question, but I remember when I started as a YSA bishop, say kind things about LGBT people on social media. I didn't have more come out to me, but the straight, the straight YSAs, and they didn't even want to talk about sexual orientation. They said, I can talk to this guy. Right. So talk more if I'm a leader, a parent, a friend, what I can do to signal that, hey, you're safe to talk to me. Great question. It, it is normalizing questions and de- demonizing, if that's a word, uh, to let them know that that questions are welcome, that you can ask anything, and I'm not going to judge you or second guess you. I'm not questioning your your commitment just because you happen to have a question. I was amazed in Institute, how often I would say, if you have specific, more specific questions or need to talk more about these things, please come, please come talk to me. And I'd give them my cell phone number and my email address. And I, you know, we became Facebook friends and, and, and just trying to put myself out there to let them know, if you want to talk about things, come and ask. Part of it was sharing personal experiences of I mean, again, it's how do I reassure people that I'm, like you said, that I'm a safe person to talk to. Not that I'm the all-knowing, because none of us are, but that I'm safe. And that even if we need to explore this together, because it's unknown to me at the time as well, then I think sometimes it can be so lonely, especially when you're in a church where the people you typically hear from in fast and testimony meetings, for example, it's all, I know, I know, I know. And when you don't feel like you can say that, am I, what am I doing here? You know, is, is there anyone like me? And if I, if I can't even say, I believe, then will I be ostracized uh, if they, if they knew really where I was standing and to let them know that I'm okay with that, that, I, that I'm fascinated by people's experiences. I've often said, you know, even if you want to just, if you're angry, if you want to come and ask hard questions, if you want, if you've left the church and you want closure, if you need a good pair of shins to if kick. You want, if you've left the church and want closure, I'm glad to have that conversation with you. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I've, I remember I've had conversations with strangers on, on front runner, for example, when I've seen that, Oh, these are young, young people. They're probably U of U students as we're all coming back from down from Salt Lake and, and struck up conversations and found that some, Oh, you're not a member of the church, but you grew up in Utah. What was that experience like? And I remember one girl saying, Oh, you don't want to know. And I said, Oh, if you feel that strongly about it, then I really want to know. And I, and just hear your story. You're a human being and your story matters. And, and your experience is as valid as anyone else's. And I want to hear it. And you deserve to be heard and to be validated, to be empathized with, to be welcomed and loved. There's, again, you don't have to be an expert on church history. You don't need to go get a PhD to be a conversation partner. 
you may need to turn to people who know some more specific answers to church history issues or doctrinal concerns or so on. But what people need first and foremost is a listening ear. And and again, a conversation partner that they can go with. I remember one student texted me once and said, thank you for telling us that we could come see you often enough that I actually started to believe that you might mean that. It, it reminds me of, of the so old... instead the old, of just the platitude, come see me if you need Exactly. It, as a way of signing off or a way exactly. of ending a lecture. And, it, and Because we've heard that from too many sets of home teachers as they're walking out the door and can I, can I do anything for you when they've already turned to leave, right? And, and, and I think also just letting them know that I have these conversations frequently or that these are things I'm interested in then, oh, okay, this isn't going to come out of left field from them. What you said is beautiful of, of being reassuring, letting people know that you have an active love, a listening ear, an open heart, an open mind, uh, that people matter. Uh, it's interesting how often when Jesus would work with people, he would reassure them before he would teach them. There was a, a fear not or a peace be unto you. There, there was just a, an, an, a, a willingness to address the person as a person, where they were. And we can, we can start working on those other issues later on. I wonder what that experience was like for that woman on the train. I would love to have heard her go tell that experience to her friends. And I bet she's never had an experience like that. And I bet it provided a measure of healing for her. I hope so. Just to be heard and validated. And maybe the anger and the tension, if that existed with her in the church and the community, would lessen just by you sat with her and her story. I, I really you felt that. didn't sell out our doctrine to do that. You exactly. Didn't, exactly. You didn't cross the line. You didn't not stand up for truth. You just did what I think you're saying our Savior would do. There, there was a... It's it been interesting because of... Anyway... The University of Utah has a great social work department, and they had invited me on several occasions to come and talk about Latter-day Saint perspectives on different things. They taught, for example, they asked me to come and, you know, will you explain Latter-day Saints' views on traditional marriage in the College of Social Work? At the and University they, of Utah. At the U of U, yeah. And they said, you will be in the Just minority. Just laying the groundwork for right? our listeners. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I said, oh, I, I figured I'd be in the minority, and that's okay with me. Uh, and then, or to just go over and talk about you know, the Latter-day Saint church, the, you know, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, because these social workers will be working with, if they're going to work in Utah, they're going to be working with Latter-day Saints as well. So it was interesting to go and just be at a sounding board and listen to them. And what are your concerns and what issues have you had with, with church members? There was a lot of angst there. I felt from some former Latter-day Saints or people that were not of the church that grew up in Utah and felt ostracized throughout their, their adolescence and to listen to them and to help them see that does sound, that sounds hard. And I, I mean, I can't speak institutionally for the church, but I'm sorry that you went through that. I, I grew up in Los Angeles. And so to know what it's like to be the minority uh, I'm, I was grateful for that experience. I loved being a religious minority in LA. I loved being a religious minority in, in Tennessee. I did interfaith work since high school. I spoke in a Catholic church, uh, as a, as a high school kid and, and I've done that ever since. And so to, to see the value of people whose views are different than mine, uh, has been a blessing and to reassure 
the group of, of master's students in the College of Social Work that your perspective is valid. And I hope that you'll allow me to share a perspective that some of your clients will consider valid as well. There's there. Yeah. We, we need to listen a whole lot more than we do and, and to be less quick to judge and less, you know, when it's not the 19th century anymore, we're not, we, we're not isolated, nor do we need to be. And to, to maintain our faith and our, our, you know, our faith doesn't have to come at the cost of friendship and, and relationships don't have to be sacrificed on the altar of religion and to be able to, I, I, I reassured this whole group said, thank you for not believing what I believe because those differences help me stop. They keep me from becoming weird. I think sometimes uh, we only hang, we all, we're in these echo chambers of people that whether it's political, politically or religiously, I only talk with people that agree with me. And that tends to move everybody towards the extremes instead of being able to talk across the aisle and be able to, to see the, the truth in other people's perspectives. Can I share a scripture really quick? Please. It was just one that came to mind. Uh, it's, it's from section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And at the very end, it's talking about this desolation of abominations that will come before the last day. And there's some kind of scary kind of apocalyptic eschatology here, but there's a pair of adverbs that I just find incredibly moving when you are laying out some of these kind of consequences for sin, so to speak. The adverbs are this. It says, well, we, they must set forth clearly and understandingly the desolation of abominations in the last days. It's not enough to just set it forth. We have to do it in these two ways, clearly and understandingly. Now, at first, that sounds redundant. If I want, I want to be clear so that I'm understood. But he didn't say understandably, he said understandingly. And so the first adverb is I'm, you know, to stick with my convictions, these are things that I really passionately believe to be true. And so I'm going to set forth my beliefs or my perspective clearly. But at the same time, and I do that in hopes of being understood. But at the same time, I have to do it in an understanding way so that my conversation partner feels understood as well. It, it's what Paul taught the Ephesians about speaking the truth in love. And some people are really good at speaking the truth, but they're kind of jerks about it. And other people are, will bend over backwards to speak in love, but they'll shy away from the truth because they don't want to ruffle feathers. And it, these are the difficult balances that the Lord is trying to help us strike to be good disciples, but also good neighbors, right? To, to live the first great commandment and love God, but in the same breath to live the second great commandment and really love our neighbor, however different that neighbor might be. To agree to disagree without becoming disagreeable. Uh, I mean, the, these are just kind of the, the attributes and the skill set, I guess, that we all need to develop to be able to be just a, a good conversation partner for whomever. You said some things in that last segment, Jared. People will be rewinding and writing down um, really thoughtful things in that sociology class and um, honoring other people's beliefs. Well, it was interesting because when I was in, I, I happened to be in Nashville during the Mitt Romney campaign, which was interesting timing and location because it's the South 
which leans heavily conservative. And so they wanted to vote Republican, but it's also the Bible Belt. So it leans heavily evangelical. So they really don't want to vote Mormon. And so it, this had there nothing... a increase in therapy and... <laughs> well, it had nothing to do with my, my role in church education, but everything to do with, the, you know, the, with my my role at the divinity school. Cause I thought, wait, there's a Vanderbilt divinity student that's Latter-day Saint. How do we get this guy to come to talk about Mormonism to our church? And they, they kind of wanted me to come and explain just enough of Mormonism that they could feel comfortable voting for the antichrist as they probably saw it. And so I was invited by the Presbyterians, the, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, the disciples of Christ come and teach us Mormonism. And I remember the first time I was going to do it, it was with this historic Disciples of Christ congregation. Historically, the Disciples of Christ don't get along a whole, really well with Latter-day Saints. That was Sidney Rigdon's group. And when Sidney Rigdon left and, and brought most of his congregation with, with him in Kirtland, uh, you know, the Campbellites were, were, weren't too keen on that departure. A wonderful, wonderful congregation uh, in, in West Nashville. And... About a week before I was going to come, a few days, the pastor called me and said, okay, you're, we're still on for next week, right? I said, of course. And he said, we're a little nervous about having you come. <laughs> and I, I laughed and said, well, well, that makes two of us, but why are you nervous? You have home court advantage. And he said, well, that's the problem. You're a guest in our congregation. And so we're kind of worried about the rules of hospitality. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, we kind of feel like we're supposed to be nice to you. But if we're nice to you, can we not ask the questions that we really want to know about your church? And I said, wow, that I'm really touched actually that you would be concerned about that. Uh, I'm grateful that you're sensitive to my feelings, but let me reassure you that I don't have any. Uh, so you can, you can't say anything to hurt them. I, I don't have any feelings to get hurt on this. I proposed to my wife for seven months before she finally relented and, and agreed to marry me. So I have very thick skin. And I, and I said to them, I will, I'll, in fact, I had a few Institute students that wanted to come and watch. And I said to this pastor, I will uninvite them because I can't vouch for the thickness of their skin. Uh, it'll all be the only Latter-day Saint there. And you can ask anything you want. And I promise not to get my feelings hurt. Uh, and when I got there, I shared the same thing with the congregation and said, I promise not to be on the defensive about anything. And at the same time, actually, this one hit me a, a couple of weeks later when I was with the Presbyterians and I told them, and I promise not to be on the offensive. Uh, I'll be neither on the defense or on the offense on this. I'm, I'm just, just here to, to answer questions that you might have. And, and it was interesting. At first they were a little hesitant, like, really, is he serious? But the more I got into things, they felt more and more welcome to ask and more comfortable asking. And there were some angry questions. There were some difficult questions, but it really did open my eyes to I mean, the promise the Lord makes, open your mouth and it shall be filled. It also re reassured me that when people, even with strong opinions, but, uh, and that differ in those opinions, once they can get to know each other and really engage in, in meaningful conversation, then you might not change minds, but you can change hearts and recognize the humanity in the other person. So I did that in multiple congregations throughout, throughout Middle Tennessee. Even, you know, I was asked to go to a, 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 one of the historically black colleges uh, in West Nashville. And, 
and I was the, they asked me to come and talk about Mormonism for two hours. And I said, I only have two hours. Uh, What do you want me to cover? And they said, oh, you know, your history, your doctrine, belief, practices. I said, you only gave me two hours. I I could do a semester on this. What, What specifically do you want? And the professor kind of hemmed and hawed over it until I finally pinned him against in the corner and said, I will fill the two hours. That won't be hard. But on my way out, I'm hoping that we've had a great discussion. But at the end of it, if there was a topic that we didn't discuss, would you be disappointed? And if so, what would that topic be? And he said, well, what a great question. I, a, I, I guess that probably our students would be interested about the race history in your church. And I said, that's what I thought. I just wanted to make sure that we were on the same page there. And so when I went there, I, rather than me being kind of loaded for bear and saying, here's these 10 t- things I want to cover. I said, here's the menu. Here are a bunch of different things about uh, Mormonism, about the church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints that we could discuss what's, where do your interests lie? And with, without exception, everybody who raised their hand to, to place an order on the menu wanted to talk about the history of race in, in the church. And, and I said, okay, well, it look, looks like that's what we're going to spend our two hours on. And we did. And it was a, a powerful experience or being invited to another university uh, sociology class. And they said, well, you come and teach this, this, you know, do a presentation on Mormonism. And I said, okay, what do you want me to cover? And they said, it's a sociology class. Oh, sociology of religion. Sounds great. And she said, the professor said, well, it's the sociology of, of social deviance. Please don't take this the wrong way. Our semester courses on social deviance. And we thought, talk about deviance, plural marriage in 19th century America. Let's get a Latter-day Saint to come in and defend the sociology of plural marriage as, as indicative of social deviance. And uh, anyway, the, the experiences that I've been gr- grateful to have have reassured me that answers are there. And when there aren't, conversation can still be had to, that help me come to a closer understanding of truth and, come, and help other people come to a, a closer approximation of truth as well. And, and to just be willing to try, uh, often the first time you have the conversation, you won't know an answer, but what a blessing to be able to say to the person, that's a great question that I don't know the answer to, but I'd love to spend some time studying it and hope you would join me with it. I mean, that happened in the mission field all the time, right? Where someone would ask a question and to be able to say to an investigator, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I studied my scriptures an hour every morning and tomorrow I'm dedicating that time to you. And even that comes across as so, it's like, really, you're going to spend an hour doing something for me to study, to learn. And, and again, to be, to be willing to, I, I guess what I'm trying to say, Richard, is to have the courage and the faith to just put yourself out there, not as an expert, but as a, com- a willing conversation partner and a non-judgmental one. And, and the Lord, once he sees that you're willing, he will use you. Uh, people will come and ask you questions and, and you will, you'll start to figure out where do I go myself to find answers to that? What on, on the, the good news of this whole thing is, I think we'll have a generation of Latter-day Saints that know their stuff way better than they did in the past. I love that, Jared, and I love the, um, a feeling I have in that your teaching is we can have confidence enough in our restored church to be able to ask hard questions and be exposed to other religions. Yeah. 
and you obviously have a deep testimony in our church, and you obviously know the warts of our history, the hard issues you've, and you see good in other faiths. Yeah. And you're not just in this bubble. I think of Brene Brown's Braving the Wilderness mm-hmm. and the beauty of your ministry. And I sort of see a parallel to what I read in that book. Talk about the hard questions that um, I sort of divide these hard questions into two groups. The historical hard questions are kind of the current hard questions. Take us, just introduce millennial Latter-day Saints to our mm-hmm. listeners. Some of you are millennial Latter-day Saints, um, active in the church, really thoughtful, well-educated, but asking really good questions about current issues today. What are some of those current issues they're asking? What are your answers? Take it, a couple questions. Yeah. The, I mean, in some ways, if you were to look at the, the lesson schedule in the foundations of the restoration class, or even look at the, you know, table of content, so to speak, of the gospel topics essays, there you have the list as far as the historical ones are concerned. You know, so like I said earlier, the, the, the some of them are, are scriptural in terms of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, how does translation work, you know, Urim and Thummim versus seer stones, things like that. Uh, the historicity of the Book of Abraham is a huge one. Uh, you know, what do we have in the papyri and what do the Egyptologists say versus what does scripture say and what did Joseph Smith say? It was, you know, so translation issues there, the multiple accounts of the first vision comes up sometimes. The race and the priesthood and plural marriage obviously are big ones. Uh, what's interesting though is... And then, like you said, as far as the the more current ones, LGBTQ questions come up very, very frequently. Uh, not the, not only among the LGBTQ community themselves, but also among friends. And 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 I have I have gay students, I have gay friends, I have gay family members, and so to to understand. In fact, I have had some fascinating conversations about race with African American Latter Day Saints to ask them. Is this explanation sensitive enough? How do you hear this when I when I explain it this way? Or to talk to gay students and, fr- and friends and say, is am I being uh, am I speaking clearly and understandingly? If we go back to that verse from section eighty four, am I speaking truth and am I speaking in, in love? Am I balancing this this well enough? And so some of those what they, again the current ones are, seem to be more social issues. And the past ones seem to be more historical or doctrinal, perhaps. What's interesting, though, and this is where the two uh, coincide, is at the root of most of those questions is a personal question or a personal uh, circumstance. I, one, one experience I had with a young woman that was asking about plural marriage, and we probably spent two hours on it, and, and, and it but nothing seemed to be sticking. I was explaining things, and she jumped to something else, or just, I was like, what's what something, something's not, you know, uh, this isn't working. Um, and so I backed up and just said, tell me a little bit more about your, your question and, and why are you asking it? And so on. That to me is a very good question it's to very ask. Open-ended question. Yeah. Instead of just, oh, that's your question. Let's dig into it. It's, oh, that's a great question. Where does it come from? Or why does it matter to you? And not in, not in a dismissive way, like, oh, this doesn't even matter. Just, you, you know, have faith and, and, and bear your testimony to them as a way to, to avoid the issue. That, that's not what we're doing here. But to be able to ask, that's a great question. I'm just curious because it's not everyone has it. Why do you? And, and what, are you, what are you wanting to, what kind of an answer would help? How do you want it to come? And for this particular young woman, plural marriage was becoming a 
a personal question as she was getting older and starting to wonder about her marriage prospects and wondering, will I marry a widower, for example, that's already sealed to someone. And, and all of a sudden it was like, whoa, this has, yes, this is a historical question, but really it's a personal one. And let's talk about that. There was a missionary that was about to go home from Tennessee. Uh, the, the APs served in the YSA ward in Nashville. And so they'd come to Institute every week with investigators. And uh, so I had a great relationship with the elders and they said, you know, there's a missionary about to go home because of anti-Mormonism. He stumbled into some anti-Mormon literature and now he feels like he doesn't have a testimony and he can't, he wants to be intellectually honest and he feels like he can't testify of things he no longer believes. And so he's going to go home. And he said, and they said, would you, I mean, you study anti-Mormonism. Would you be willing to talk to him before he leaves? And I said, as long as it's okay with the mission president, I'd be happy to. And I remember driving to go meet with this elder thinking, I've got one shot and he's on the plane. Uh, what, what can I do to try to help him navigate this? And we ended up having a powerful experience. But what was interesting as I'm like, okay, elder, what's, what are the questions? What did, what did you read and what, how can I help? And he'd ask a question about, you know, first vision accounts and I'd start to explain. And before I could even get to a, you know, a clarification, he'd jump to a different question. Like, well, okay, fine, but fine. But what about, what about this? And we, oh, oh, that's what we're talking. Okay, let's, let's go there. Okay, well, let's do coming forth the Book of Mormon. And I start to explain some things and contextualize or give it another perspective. And, and right before we got to a solution, uh, he'd, sidestep and jump somewhere else. And it was fascinating. It almost felt like you were playing whack-a-mole, you know, and, and something would pop up. And right when you're about to re help, you know, address that, he, it's like he would dodge the question, uh, or I should say dodge the answer as it was about to come. And then I realized, wow, this person, they don't want answers. They prefer to hold on to the question. So what, what, is, what's going on? Uh, and so I just backed up and said, Elder, tell me, tell me a little bit more about your mission and how's, what's it been like here since you've been here. And, and it was amazing to realize that at the, at the core of all of these anti-Mormon historical questions was a, a teenager that was having the hardest time of his life because the mission was the hardest thing he'd ever been asked to do. And he, did, he didn't want to come home saying that I just couldn't hack it. So he actually went in search of questions in hopes that he could come home with a better reason. And once I empathized with him and let him know how hard my mission was at the beginning, but how much better it got when I fully surrendered to the work and immersed myself in it. And, and we just talked about endurance and, and trial and strength and faith. And it was amazing. By the end, he felt understood. He felt uh, empathized with. He had, I mean, he put his anti-Mormonism in proper perspective and realized, I don't, I mean, yeah, my testimony in the gospel is shaky right now, but I don't have a testimony of all this anti either. I, I'm not going to go home and proselytize my family away from the church. I, I'm still in this middle ground where maybe it is may, true. Maybe it isn't. I, I need to exercise faith and, and I need... I really need to come to an understanding of truth. And so he started, decided to stay and pay that price and he served a valiant mission. And so to and again, I wasn't waving the magic wand and answering every question, nor was I trying to sidestep those questions. But I realized, and this is so often the case with people, someone that has a purely historical question is rare because most people don't care enough about history. 
when they do, I, my eyes light up. I'm like, really? You like history as much as I do? Great. Let's go. Let's dig into some stuff from the 1830s. But for them, or, or you lose sleep over this theological issue. Awesome. Let's have a conversation. But for most people, it's a personal experience they've had. In fact, I'm fascinated that throughout the, most of the history of church education, Institute has focused on college age students because it's the college students that are being bombarded with philosophy or, or things at school and are often away from home and the support system that they grew up with. I'm amazed that I don't, can't say a percentage or anything, but the bulk, the majority of people that come to talk to me aren't the 18 to 23 or four year old college students. It's the 24 to 30 plus year olds, young adults, young professionals. It's not the philosophies of men. It's often the experiences of life. And it's, it's not, the gospel isn't working the way I thought it was supposed to for me, or I haven't, life hasn't turned out the way that I was assured that it would. And so often it becomes more God questions and the church is the earthly manifestation of their perspective on God. So the questions quickly kind of congeal around church issues, but really what they're struggling with is God. And is he there? And is he aware of my circumstance and, and what I'm going through? Often when I'm talking with someone about plural marriage or talking with someone about race in the priesthood or the Mountain Meadows massacre or you name it, I'll often just, if it feels like it's not going anywhere, I'll often just cut to the chase and ask, do you still believe in God? And that often kind of jolts them into this, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm, I'm not an atheist. I'm not I'm like, well, and if you are, that's okay. Uh, what, but do, do you believe in God? And it's interesting to watch people wrestle with that. And sometimes I don't even know anymore. Uh, I had a, to, to me, the example that I like to share with students is the, the foundation of the Salt Lake Temple which is currently being worked on, you know, that when it was covered up when Johnston's army was on the way and then uncovered once they realized that, that, you know, that what the temple square wasn't in danger of desecration, there were cracks in the foundation. And now you're stuck with this horrible choice to make. Do, what are we going to do? This foundation is not going to support a granite temple. So I have to decide do we change the, the superstructure? Do we build something lighter uh, that this foundation will support? Or, oh man, I, I don't hate to even think about it. Do I rip out what I've got and start over at some, at some point? And I've asked students, you know, if you don't care what your spiritual life is going to look like, if spirituality is a, is a side aspect, a peripheral part of, of who you are, then I guess you can go through life having cracked foundations and don't, you're not going to build much on it anyway. You don't care. But if you want a spiritual life to stand through the millennium, if you care what your spiritual side looks like through life, it's worth, it's worth tearing out foundation. It's worth plumbing the depths and, and discovering how deep do my cracks really go? And I've asked him if your cracks only go down through the church, Great. Let's start there. Let's do church history stuff. But if your cracks go down, do they go down to Jesus? Are you wondering if he's the Christ? Then, then that's where we need to go. Or do they go all the way down to bedrock and you're not even sure if God exists? Uh, don't shy away from that because if we spend all this time 
on church history issues, and yet you don't believe in God? I mean, talk about rearranging, you know, straightening deck chairs on the Titanic, right? It's, you know, someone that, that I'm very close to was, was struggling about, he was hitting mission age and struggling, do I go? And I remember my wife knew him really well too. And he said, and she said, don't you dare ask if you should serve a mission yet. You don't even know if God is real. Don't get ahead of yourself. Take it nice and slow. Start where the cracks go and start. Do I believe in God? And I'm, and I've had some beautiful conversations with people that finally admit, yeah, my cracks go all the way down. I said, awesome. Then we know where to start. Uh, let's, let's not use a, some kind of cosmetic patch up work on, on issues of 19th century Mormonism. Let's come to know God. And once you do, if God is the first step, then this, I was first time I ever had a conversation with a student like that. I was going to say, now Jesus is your second step. And then I stopped and felt, no, there's actually a, an intermediate step. Once you know, God is real. Step two is I believe in God. Now, do I believe in sin? Because if God, if there's no such thing as sin, you can still believe in God that doesn't care about sin. It's, you know, he created and he let you live how you want and, you know, do your thing. But if there's sin and not just some kind of social construction of, you know, societal expectations, but real conscience, is there something amiss in my soul that not just because my culture has, has pre-programmed me to, to feel that way, then there has to be a solution for it. So if one, if there's a God who two cares how I live, then three, what is God's solution to sin? And that's where Christianity comes in, along with a whole bunch of other possibilities too. So what are the world's religions? What are their solutions to the problem of sin? And as I've studied them, I just feel great power uh, intellectually, but also spiritually about that I do believe in God. I've had, and this isn't just a philosophical kind of argument from design. It is experiential and it's relational. I believe in God. I'm a theist. I can say that. Number two, I believe in sin because I've committed it and I've felt uh, just the tilt of my soul amiss. And then three, I'm a Christian because I've felt the power of Christ's grace cleanse me from sin. And then, and only then, do we start talking about religions. Once, if you're, once you become a Christian, then you can start asking, does Christ even care about a church? Is there a need for organized religion? Does he use one? If so, which one? And I believe he uses them all. But is there a, a, a religious vehicle that can tap into the, the atonement of Christ in ways that truly, again, how does, and that's to me is where the restored church of Jesus Christ comes in. And putting it in that perspective and slowly building that foundation until, okay, this one can stand. I can build something on this. And, and now with this perspective, I'm, I'm open to the kinds of conversations about church history or about uh, current social issues and prophetic leadership and so on. Uh, there's almost, I don't know if momentum is the right word, but I've, I've built this these foundational levels so I can, I, I can have something, something to stand on. Really touched by that last segment, Jared. There's a couple of things that um, 
this young man in Tennessee on his mission. Um, this, I, I don't think you learned this in a classroom with what you did with him and it's take, and I don't have this figured out, but you could have just relied on your, your understanding of church history and had that whole conversation. It was something, a pastoral skill set, a ministering skill set in you that got you out of your most comfortable lane into another lane that I think is really comfortable for you. But for a lot of leaders, it's not, right. is to sort of step back and and step away from your platform, perhaps, and where you were most comfortable and ask some open-ended questions to really, it, it's the iceberg concept where he was, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, you totally. could see the, you could, you were talking about the stuff on the top of the iceberg, but your real home run in that experience to me was you figured out was the bottom of the iceberg. Yeah. And then, and you did that through open questions, listening to the spirit and listening, and then you were able to help him. Yeah. And what a fast, and then I love the, the foundation um, of the temple. Um, we all love that temple. I miss that temple. Mm-hmm. And I love the cracks, but I loved the non-shaming you did where you asked the question, do you believe in God? And I, that, it's like my suicide training. I know mm-hmm. that it's, I know that I need to ask if someone's suicidal. Yeah. Yeah. I need to ask if they have a plan. I need to ask about that plan. And it doesn't cause them to be more suicidal, but it helps them to know that I'm safe for them yeah. to fully open up. And I didn't create any shame in that conversation. So you did just the same thing with that young man or young woman. You said, well, do you believe in God? Yeah. You didn't create any shame like, oh, has this gone so bad that now you don't even believe in God? Right. Well, exactly. <laughs> and I think there's natural ways that we can do that in conversation uh, or in teaching and comments that we make in classes. Uh, there's a... At our, in our home, among our children, uh, there's a lot of mental health uh, tr- struggles and trials that we go through. And I'm, I try to protect my children, uh, but at the same time, I try to share experiences and insights that we're having and some of those struggles so that my students, I'm amazed at how many that struggle with mental health issues themselves know that I'm safe because That's of the cool. way I talk about it. And they'll come in and on the, again, a lot of per, the personal questions of how do you feel the spirit when anxiety and depression or what, you know, how do you, when God speaks to the mind and heart, what if the mind and heart aren't are functioning the way that we, we want, would want them to. And, and again, no shame. This is to, to destigmatize these kinds of things and, and let people just reassure them that this is, I'm comfortable talking about these things. Your, your example of suicide is a, is a perfect one you know, of we need to talk about these things. It's, it's interesting sometimes when someone will come in and they'll say, oh, I have a question, but, 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 but it's not a doubt. And, 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 and it's, there's this immediate, like, please don't think I'm a doubter. And, talk and, about doubt. That's on my list right here in front of me. I want you to talk about doubt. Well, well, what's funny when the way they say it though, it's like this four letter word, you know, <laughs> and I, 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 and I'll just kind of laugh and go, Hey, even if it's a doubt, that's okay too. Or they'll say, I'm not in faith crisis or anything. And I'll just interrupt right then and go, and even if you are, let's have the conversation. It's totally fine. There's not, again, no, no shame in that. Uh, to, to normalize it, to be able to have these kinds of, of good conversations with people. When it comes to doubt, it's interesting. The, it's this word that's very criminalized sometimes and triggered. Right, and right. And I yet, even and hear yet, our leaders talk about that in a range of interpretations of right. And yet it's interesting because uh, there's been a great kind of normalization. And on the one hand, for faith to exist, doubt has to be a possibility. 
right? Uh, Alma talks about this. The brother Jared talks about this. When faith becomes perfect knowledge, then it no longer is faith. Uh, I, it's, it's, I know I don't have to exercise faith on that. It's, it's just clear. And, and yet the Lord really wants us to develop faith. And so it, it, to me, I even have, have this love-hate relationship with apologetics, you know, where it's like, oh, here's this clear-cut answer, and boom, there it is, case closed, you know, hit the gal- gavel, and the conversation's over. The problem with those kinds of so-called clear-cut answers is it ends the conversation. It ends the search. It ends faith. It's like, oh, thank you. I don't have to exercise faith anymore. The way I, I, I often describe it to, to students and to, to priesthood leaders that I've worked with, I call it walking across the teeter-totter. And if you remember, you know, as a kid playing on the seesaw or the teeter-totter, uh, when you're standing on one side, it's really stable because it's on the ground, right? And I think that's this first level of faith where everything's black and white and everything's crystal clear and it's all true. Most, most of us felt that way when we started our missions, you know, and it's just, it's perfect. It's awesome. Um, but then ambiguity starts to, to creep in and we, and it doesn't all happen the way that we thought it would. And we saw, see good in faiths outside our faith. And we, we go through things that, you know, make us question things. And what's interesting is we're, so they're inching out across the teeter totter and it starts to get a little shaky, but because we, we don't like that instability, I've seen so many people tend to run across to they get to the other side and boom, it's back to being stable. The problem is that second level of stability isn't that different than the first levels of stability. It's still often uh, not very nuanced. It's still often a black and white. It was just, it was white the first side. Now it's black the second side. There's these kind of stages of faith that people go through and, and it's either all true when you're on one side of the, of the teeter totter and, and to watch people leave the church running, it's, it's now it's become all false. You know, on the one side of the teeter totter, it was, prophets are infallible. And the second side, it's prophets aren't even inspired. There's no such thing as prophets. And I, sometimes I just, well, now you're being just as dogmatic as you used to be just in the opposite direction. What about, what about this middle plate? Can you stand in the middle of the teeter totter? And that to me is where faith flourishes. The, but it's tricky to get there. I've had some students go, man, standing in the middle, that sounds exhausting. I said, well, ask a gymnast. It's not as exhausting as it is for, for them as it is for us. Why? What's the strongest muscle in a gymnast? The core. And to, to faith is this core muscle that we've developed where we aren't blown about by winds of doctrine, that we really can maintain balance without having to kind of cop out to this naive uh, gullible, I can't even call it faith, but just this closed-minded, it's all true and quit asking me. But at the same time, it's not the skeptical, cynical, again, closed-minded, it's all false, so quit asking me. Uh, my, as I work with people, my goal really is to get them to the middle of the, of the teeter-totter and to become comfortable standing there. To me, the most, one of the most poignant questions Jesus ever asked is in Luke 18, where he talks about the second coming and he says, when the son of man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That to me is as personal as it gets from Jesus. It's like, when I come back, will anyone even care? Will they believe? Will there be faith? Not, not just perfect knowledge, not even that. Will there be faith, this muscle that you're exercising? And 
And that's my hope is not just to answer questions to end conversations. It's to build faith so they can have an ongoing conversation with God that hopefully lasts the rest of eternity. Uh, the, that's the one bummer of a clear cut answer. It ends the conversation. Oh, that's it. Thanks. And I'm on my merry way. Instead of I'm still wrestling. Good. Then you're still talking with God. And that's what it's, that's what we're after. So when it comes to this doubt, doubt can be such a beautiful thing because it allows, it gives space for faith where a perfect, a so-called perfect knowledge ends it and says, I don't need to exercise faith on this. I don't have to, to, to flex any spiritual muscles. I just know, and it's over and I'm done and I'm not going to deal with that anymore. Now, now there's a, a one caution I'd put out though on doubt, which I, we had this fascinating faculty meeting where we were talking about doubt and it was, it was shared with us by someone in the know that there are concerns about Oh, I don't know the right word, but if doubt becomes this, uh, oh, this kind of higher order, uh, that doubt is actually better than faith, you know, and, and this courageous wrestling with doubts and doubts are a wonderful thing and so on. And their concern was in the scriptures, doubt is never a positive, is, is never described in positive terms. In scriptures, it's doubt not, fear not. In scriptures, it's it's doubt not, but be believing. It's how could you doubt, you know? And and so I was struggling with this myself after this faculty meeting because I thought I, I see the value of doubt uh, in terms of allowing giving room for faith and growth, but I but they do have a point from a scriptural perspective. Doubt is a bad, that, that doubt's a no, no. Right. And so I was wrestling with this and thinking, okay, is it a semantic issue? Is it, is it just the way the words are being used? And the more I studied this, I realized in scripture, doubt is used as a verb. And in our day, doubt is usually used as a noun. It's like, well, I have my doubts and, uh, or I, 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 you know, I have a doubt about this. And what Jesus was saying and what scripture always says is this verb of doubt not, you know, fear not, doubt not. And, and as I've pondered this, what's the difference between doubt as a noun and doubt as a verb? And as I've pondered it, I think doubt as a verb becomes more attitudinal. It's how you approach questions. And, and as opposed to faith, as more of a verb of my attitude of how do I approach questions uh, instead of propositional. I think sometimes we approach things propositionally like, well, here's all these things, these propositions, these doctrines, these principles that I'm supposed to check off. So yes, I agree with that. Or I have a testimony of that. I, I agree with these propositions or, oh, well, this one, I don't know about that proposition. So I guess I have a doubt on that one. Forget the propositional approach, take the attitudinal approach and what's my perspective on things? What's my attitude towards things that have been revealed and things that have not been revealed? I mean, if we still believe in the ninth article of faith, that God has yet to reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God, I, I don't see a, an expiration date on that. And so if there's still great things yet to come, then of course we're going to have question marks right? There, of course, there's space of things that we just don't know. God hasn't revealed it. And, and, but what's my attitude towards those things? If my attitude is one of faith, then I see those things not as unanswerable questions. I see them as revelations yet to come. Whereas if my 
attitude is one of doubt, then those are things we're never going to know. We couldn't possibly know. In fact, I don't even know if we know the things we quote unquote know now. And so it's almost in my mind, I pictured like this, this, I don't know, this graph with a line down the middle somewhere. And on one side of it are my questions and the other things are my certainties. And rather than it, like, this is my faith section, this is my doubt section. To me, faith and doubt is, is who are both hovering over the line between my certainties and my uncertainties, pushing them in one direction or the other. And if I approach that, that line, that dividing line with faith, then it's a matter of, oh, I can, I know I can uh, kind of venture into that territory of doubt, that territory of unknown, that t- territory of uncertainty. And answers will come in God's time and in God's way. Whereas the, if doubt is towing the line, then he, t- doubt is pulling it in the opposite direction, kind of gobbling up things that we used to think we knew. And now we're starting to, to wonder and question about. I love that. Uh, this is a podcast I'm going to listen to again. Oh, you're kind. <laughs> I just have a couple questions and then we need to um, end. Um, I sort of coined a term one day sitting in class, um, a Sunday school class or an elders quorum. And I said to myself, this feels like the best answer club mm-hmm. where the 10% of the people that have had the most leadership experience or the most academic experience sort of thrive and they have are quick to sort mm-hmm. of, and I sense that there was maybe 80%, including me, that sort of sit back and kind of watch them take the lead. And and how do you, and that's uh, that's my first question, how do you kind of create a culture, and I think you've been teaching that, where you you want to have good answers. So if someone has a good answer and they're, you want to have that person speak up, but you also want to have the same person that has a really good question feel like mm-hmm. um, that their questions are valid. And, the, and then in closing, will you just... Give us your kind of your testimony of the doctrines that keep you a believing member, why you stay mm-hmm. a believing member, because it's helpful for our listeners, just like you've s- said, someone who knows all the messy, complicated stuff. Um, you understand our church with full, what's the term, blinders off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you won't be surprised next week about something that comes up, you know, that you didn't know and why you stay. So those are the two yeah, questions in closing. I guess for the first is just have the faith and courage to, to start, to try. Uh, because you don't even know, half the time you don't even know what the questions are until somebody asks you them. Uh, you don't know what your questions are if you don't have the courage to explore. You don't know what other people are wondering about. And I'm, I'm amazed at the, the guts that God has to send missionaries into the field, for example. I mean, talk about... I knew nothing as a 19 year old. I thought I knew a lot. And you went to tell us. I, I served in Puerto Rico okay. in, in, in the Caribbean and, and thought, I mean, I, I, like I said, had loved religion before and, and did interfaith work and read all kinds of church history and theology as a high school kid. But really I knew nothing as a 19 year old, but the Lord threw me into the deep end and helped me swim. And I think, Often it just takes that courage, that faith to just, I'm going to try. Heavenly Father, I, I'm not going to know the answer. But if you don't even know the question to begin with, and you're never going to even know where to search for an answer. And I'm not saying you need to go search through anti-Mormonism. You don't need to. If it'll find its way to you in the form of friends and loved ones, once they know that you're a willing conversation partner. 
And again, the first experience you have, you might not do them much good to their mind at all. Cause ah, uh, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know what to respond, but you'll do wonderful good to their heart showing them I'm, I'm willing to go there with you. And then now you know what to study and to pay a price. Again, the, it's, it's fascinating to me to watch what Paul says about milk before meat. And when you have a church that is growing at breakneck speed all around the world, if you have, if you only have one kitchen and one meal, then by definition, you're only going to be drinking milk always. Uh, now there, there's a, that's a whole nother conversation of like, well, does the one size fits all approach serve us? Right. And there are other ways to find meat, uh, in the, in the church and not just outside it. Uh, I'm grateful for as all the meat that's there, but you kind of have to understand why the church's approach throughout the world is what it is. It's like, here's the milk because there are converts all around the world that, that need, that need, this is what's going to help them as they, as they develop their, their faith and testimony. Um, but we can, and we can sometimes fool ourselves into thinking, wow, I'm an expert in the church. Well, you're an expert with milk. Uh, are you ready to start chewing on, on tougher fare? And again, having the courage to, again, I'm not, I'm, I'm please don't mis- misunderstand. I'm not saying go dive into anti-Mormonism. I have students sometimes like, oh, you study anti-Mormonism. That's so cool. I'm like, no, it's not cool. But I felt like the Lord needed me to do this. And I've had some, some interesting experiences where I know what I'm doing, that I'm doing what he wants me to do. And he's, and he's blessed me through this. Um, but it's, uh, for for the for the vast majority of church members, what do we do? We listen. We open our hearts. We open our minds. We 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 go down those paths with one another, and as a result, we'll we'll start learning what the questions are, and we'll start learning where are the answers, and we'll start studying more. We'll start. What I'm most excited about again, I, I started saying this before, but I, I lost my my mental train of thought. The there is a critical mass in the church that is leaving because of their struggles. But can you imagine what the church would look like if we can help that critical mass navigate it, learn the doctrine, learn the history, learn how to help people in the process as they're growing through these stages of faith. Imagine when they come back, how open-minded they'll be, what good critical thinkers they'll be, still as faithful as they were before, but with a, with an, a kindness, with a gentleness, with an, an open-mindedness. Uh, I don't know. To me, that's, that's beautiful. And to think, oh, if we can just help this critical mass navigate it, that's a beautiful view of what the church can be uh, when, when we, if we can help. And so I would just say, have the courage to venture. And, and have the faith that the answers really are there and, and keep your hand on the iron rod and, and keep your eyes on the love of God. And with that other hand, you can reach out to people who've, who are, who are flailing and struggling and reaching for help. Uh, we, we need more people that are willing to do it. And you'll, I promise you'll get better at it. You'll get better and better and better at it. It's again, compared to how little I knew at the, at the beginning of my mission, to the end or how awkward I felt the first time I sat down with a congregation and just said, okay, Heavenly Father, I'm, I'm jumping in. 
I'm opening my mouth. You promised to fill it. I hope that's not with my foot. Uh, please let me know what to say here. And I was, um, I'm amazed at the experiences that Heavenly Father blessed me with, with questions that I'd never contemplated and being put on the spot in a, you know, with 50 Methodists looking on. And what do I say about this? And, and letting answers come. And sometimes still wishing that more answer had come. And so I'm going to keep thinking about it and keep studying it and keep pondering this until it starts to make more sense to me. And, and then I'll be able to do that. I mean, you remember Elder President Kimball's great quote about the women of the church, that much of the growth in the last days will be because, will be because of these incredible Latter-day Saint women that are different in happy ways. It's been quoted several times since then in conference, uh, Sister Eubanks most recently. But he uses the word articulate. He said, when women with, with articulateness is what was, and that, that struck me as one who studies rhetoric, that was an interesting word. And I thought, was he asking for eloquent women? I don't think so. I think articulateness as in, can you articulate this? It doesn't have to be, you know, beautifully crafted, but can you explain something? Or as Peter says, can you give a reason for the hope that is in you? At the end of the day, it's still your hope. It's still your faith. But can you explain it in order to give a reason to someone who's asking you? And I think that just requires a lot more thought on our part. Am I willing to ponder, how can I say that better? How can I say that more clearly? How can I say that more understandingly? How can I stand for truth with, with and still be as loving as my conversation partner, partner needs me to be? So I would just That's have great. the courage and faith and jump in. Just, just start. You'll get better. Uh, as far as uh, my own testimony, uh, I'm grateful for the gift of faith, really. And I call it a gift to recognize that there was a giver behind it. I'm grateful for experiences teaching. Teaching has been such a blessing to me because it's times where I find my mouth filled and, and just to be able to be a, a part of someone's life and watch what the gospel does to them. It's incredible. I rejoice in the good that people of faith do around the world, whatever that faith might be. I love interfaith work because I have a, a healthy d dose of what Christer Stendhal, the former Harvard Divinity School Dean and Lutheran Bishop of, Stock of Stockholm said, he called it holy envy. And I feel a lot of that. I, I, it's one of the reasons I love going to other churches and just feeling that holy envy for the good that they do. Uh, I remember being in an interfaith panel discussion at Vanderbilt. We did it every year and we'd have a Catholic priest and a Protestant minister and a a Buddhist and a, and a Hindu and a, a Muslim and a Jew and an atheist and a pagan and a Latter-day Saint. And, and we'd just pick a topic and we'd each prepare, you know, a two or three minute explanation of how our tradition views that topic. And then we'd open it up to Q&A uh, for the community. And I just remember one of those years sitting back and just looking down the, the row at all of these colleagues and just being grateful for them and the good that they were doing and the difference they were trying to make in the world and wondered, can they explain me? Can they explain my religious convictions within their theology? I don't know if they can. Great question. 
And I, and, but then I pondered in reverse. Can I? Does my, is my theology inclusive enough to validate the spiritual experiences they have had? And I feel like it is. I agree. And, and to me, it was like, wow, I can, I can explain you without taking away your voice. I, 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 I don't, I'm not just kind of Mormonizing your experience, but I can see what God's hand in your life and his working in you. And it still fits within this expansive, inclusive theology of the restored gospel. Even something as simple as the missions of the church, to me, it, it boils back down again, the, the base layer of my foundation. I believe in God. I've had experiences where I, I just know he's there and, and that he loves all of his children, that there's, that he doesn't have a, a one size that we have to fit. And whether that's politically or religiously or, or socially or whatever the case might be, that when we, when we talk about the world and the rain that falls upon everyone, I believe in a God whose umbrella is broad enough to cover everyone. That God's love is such that everyone who's ever lived can come in from the rain. Well, if God, the next level, well, does God have, where does Christianity fit in all of this? And to me, to understand Jesus, that what is the reach of his redemption? Is his umbrella as broad as God's is? Because if it isn't, then, then God must be working through a, a lot of other things. And Jesus isn't the only way, the truth of the life that uh, some people can come under the father without him. And yet I don't believe that because I see the redemption of Jesus just as inclusive as the, 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 the reach of his redemption is just as broad as the love of God. In other words, Christ's umbrella is just as big as Heavenly Father's. Well, then in third level, what about church? Because I, I had a conversation in divinity school and there were some friends that were, once, once they knew we could trust each other and have really open conversations, which I loved, they were like, we don't get Mormonism. Where do you guys fit in all of this? What, what, are you just another denomination? But you say you're not Protestants, but you're not Catholics. What, what the heck are you guys? And, and, I did it as gently as I could, but also boldly and said, oh, well, we don't see ourselves as a denominational umbrella. And this is where this umbrella analogy for, started forming in my head. Because if, if we just care about fellow Latter-day Saints, that our umbrella covers Mormons, then there's a, the vast majority of God's children are, are out in the rain and our umbrella wasn't big enough to help them. So, you know, is there a bigger umbrella that we're a part of? Are we under the umbrella of Protestantism? Well, no, because that leaves Catholics out. Are we under the umbrella of Christianity? Well, yes and no, because are we leaving Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and atheists out? And so to me, part of the restored gospel that I absolutely love, if we're here to perfect the saints, which is where I spend the bulk of my time, then we're meeting the needs of Latter-day Saints but every church is there to perfect its saints, right? So what's the next level? Well, we proclaim the gospel and I loved being a missionary and to still share the gospel in any way that I can with people who don't have it in its fullness. Our umbrella is growing when we do that, but there's still other churches that proclaim their gospel too. So next, the third then, 
redeem the dead? Nobody does that. And to think of what the temple does and what our theology of redemption of the dead and what happens in the spirit world and so on. Can you, can you name a single child of God that doesn't fall within one of those three categories? And once you realize that our, our mission and president Nelson has done it probably more emphatically than anybody since Joseph Smith of gathering Israel on both sides of the veil, that is extending the umbrella of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints until it is as all-encompassing as the redemptive reach of Jesus and the all-encompassing love of God. And to, to me, the, the, the intellectual answers the restored gospel gives me are breathtaking, and the spiritual foundation that it provides to me is so stabilizing in a shaking world. I, again, I love faith of whatever stripe, but I've never seen a vehicle quite like the restored gospel to help people come home. Sometimes I've said when people have left or leaving the church or thinking of it, I feel like a, a car salesman and they're walking off the lot. And I just want to say, wait, 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 can we just, can, can we take a test drive? Please, can we just take a test drive? And they'll look at me in disbelief going, this is the only car I've ever driven my whole life. Uh, I don't need another test drive. And I just want to say, can we please just do one more? But this time, can I drive and take the emergency brake off? Because there's so much more to the restored gospel than I think we sometimes are used to. You know, the, the, I don't know. There, there's so much more that could be said. I'm just grateful for the chance that you've given me, Richard, of, of sharing things that I feel passionately about and things that I feel very confirmed in. Uh, not at the expense or exclusion of people who believe differently, but uh, I just hope that we recognize the gifts that we've been given and they're worth sharing with the world. Um, thank you so much. I personally am so touched by your podcast. I didn't tell you this today, but it's my birthday and you've given me a birthday <laughs> present. Well, happy birthday. And I'm, and I'm sorry that you had to spend part, and, part of it with me. Um, when we scheduled this podcast, I thought that would be something I really like to do on my birthday. And um, I have just been fed by you, Jared. Well, that speaks volumes of, you, of who you um, are, Richard. So thank you. And on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for what you've done for us today and what you're doing, your future mission. As I consider you a young guy, you've got a full head of hair with very, just a touch of gray. So you look like you're in your 30s. <laughs> Lots of touches. And you are blessing so many people and you will bless so many people, but you're also teaching us how to bless others. And what you're doing is scalable. And that's part of the beauty of your mission is the one-on-one, -on -one, but then those one-on-one -on -one are being able to help other people. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Mm -hmm.